The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is a leading provider of PV inverter solutions across the world, and also storage. SunGrow is providing energy storage systems to some of the largest projects in the U.S., including one in Fort Worth, Texas, called Chisholm Grid. It's a 100-megawatt standalone battery storage installation that will start commercial operation in the middle of this year. Learn more about SunGrow's energy storage solutions by emailing them at info at sungrowamericas.com. The Energy Gang is also brought to you by SNC Electric. New technologies are unlocking innovative ways to solve all kinds of power-related challenges, and that includes non-wired alternatives. Alternatives like microgrids can provide more sustainable, resilient, and economic ways to deliver reliable power, and SNC can help you work through some of those decisions. SNC helps utilities and commercial customers find the best solutions, including those that are non-wired, to meet their energy needs. Learn more at snc.com. Slash NWA. This is the Energy Gang, weekly discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. All around you, hidden inside our buildings, are a series of choices and trade-offs. Choices with direct impacts on our health, our money, and our energy use. How do we make those choices with better building science? And how do we use that science to design carbon out of our buildings? Catherine Hamilton is in Arlington, Virginia. Hi, Catherine. Hey, it's starting to feel like fall. Have you calculated the amount of carbon I see in the uh, walls behind you? No. I have a manufactured home, so I think it is fairly efficient. Is that true? Do you do do we know that the the embodied carbon in a manufactured home is is different than a custom home? Are you asking me? <laughs> I hope so, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well let's bring in that voice, that new voice you hear. That is Christine Williamson who is a building science expert and we're going to get the answer. How are you, Christy? Fantastic. How are you? Good. Do you know the answer to that question? It's complicated, like a lot of things. It's complicated. Oh, boy. We're going to get into some serious complications today. So uh, Christy is is here to talk to us about building science and using building science to make better decisions inside buildings. And she is what I consider, I, I, I don't know if there are any other building science influencers out there. Are you the only building science influencer? I might be, actually. I might be. I was sort of thinking it's like a tallest building in Kansas kind of distinction, and I, except, except there actually are other buildings in Kansas. I might be the only one on Instagram. So, so I guess I can, I can take the honor. I'll, I'll take what I can get. So Christy created the Instagram community Building Science Fight Club, which is such a fantastic resource. It has 82,000 followers. So a lot of people are listening to what she has to say. And uh, again, I said she's a and again, she's a building scientist who, who teaches architects how to think more intelligently about designing residential and commercial buildings to improve comfort, to improve energy performance, minimize system failures, and for environmental performance. Um, so let's talk about the big picture of our built environment and get into um, how we make buildings perform better for us and for the environment. Christy, as far as I can tell, you have kind of a contrarian take on the green building space. Would you say that? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's 
it's very difficult to have honest conversations about this. Sometimes we sort of fall into these performative roles based on sort of bigger picture, more complicated cultural and political signifiers. Um, so I think a lot of times we're, we see opposition where there actually, where there actually isn't. Um, but yeah, I have a, I have, I have a, a bit of a different, different take on particularly carbon use and, and what we ought to be, how we ought to be thinking about design and, and carbon in, in um, buildings. So let's start with big picture. Why are we thinking about this? Catherine, talk about the built environment and its role in emissions and in the environment. Yeah, reducing emissions in buildings is going to be crucial to achieving net zero emissions by 2050. Buildings represent 39% of global greenhouse gas emissions and 28% of that is operational. So all the equipment that's operating in a building and then 11% of what you would call embodied. So the building materials, construction, and the global building floor space is projected to double by 2060, and only 3% of the investment in that construction is green and efficient. And buildings last a really long time, as do all of the equipment inside of them. So it's a big deal. Yeah, and so the policy environment in tackling buildings has changed over time. Um, you've Building codes have, of course, been very important, uh, but you've, you've, we've generally relied on a lot of flashy rating systems and um, carrots. And today, you're starting to see a lot more sticks. Um, you have emissions targets for buildings in places like New York City, a lot of mandates for solar and strict efficiency in new homes in places like California. And increasingly around the country, there are bans on new fossil gas connections in residential uh, construction and, uh, and also potentially in commercial buildings. And so people are going further to, you know, try to promote, uh, you know, cleaner building practices and cleaner technologies inside buildings. And, um, you know, more architects and developers are also committing to the principles of net zero design as well. So you have international and national organizations, you know, big bodies of, of architects who are saying that they are going to, you know, restructure their portfolios and their practices to to focus on getting carbon out of buildings. And, and that's why we're talking to Christy today, because she spent her career on the ground inside homes and commercial buildings using building forensics to identify problems with design and operation. And so we wanted to hear from an underground practitioner uh, about what is most effective for improving the performance of buildings and what is not. Before we get there, Christy, I, I wanted to talk about Building Science Fight Club. Like, what is what are you trying to do with that? What are you educating practitioners about, and what's the end goal? Yeah, so it's it started as a basically the the very short summary is it's a hobby that's gotten a little out of hand, but. Um, I mean to to put it to put it bluntly, but um, Building Science Fight Club is really it's an Instagram account that teaches architects and architects in training about building science and construction. It's run by me. I'm just a sole practitioner who really enjoys teaching. There's no agenda beyond that educational mission. I mean, it certainly hasn't hurt my career to be more well-known in the industry, but it really is just a place for non-sponsored professional education. So what kind of problems are you identifying then? Like, what are you pointing out 
to practitioners? Well, sometimes it's not problems. Sometimes it's just purely understanding why something works for the sake of understanding why it works so that when you do have a problem or a design challenge that you're trying to resolve, you're better equipped to understand the trade-offs and and resolve it better. But a lot of of what we really talk about is is not just energy efficiency and, and environmental responsibility, but risk. And primarily the risk of, of water-related failures in, in our buildings. Stuff like rot, corrosion, mold, that, that kind of stuff. And um, when it comes to discussions of energy, a, a lot of the design decisions that we wish to consider to advance our climate goals can unintentionally make our buildings less durable and less healthy. Now, those things aren't always in opposition to each other, um, thank goodness, right? But they're also rarely in perfect harmony. And that's where building science can really help. So a good example is if we, if we want to continue to insulate our walls more, we need to be extra careful about rainwater management and condensation control. And that can mean altering details and using different materials. And that is totally doable. We can do that. But... It's also true that stuff that worked just fine for decades, not just materials, but details, like the way you install a window or how the wall meets the foundation, don't work the same way anymore. When um, when we add insulation, we reduce the energy flow across our walls or our roofs or, or whatever. And that's a good thing. That's exactly what we want insulation to do. But less energy means less drying so that stuff that used to get a little bit wet and could safely dry can't get wet anymore. So we need to consider different details and sometimes even different materials. And we have similar trade-offs when we increase relative humidity inside our buildings, for example, or when we increase ventilation rates. And really, building science and, and a good understanding of construction, both of those things together, help us parse those trade-offs better so that we can make more intelligent decisions. So we want to advance the cause of energy efficiency, and we want to do that without compromising safety, durability, or or occupant health. And stuff like what I said earlier, stuff like rot, corrosion, and mold, all of those have safety, durability, and health implications. And uh, and that's important for us to to consider. Wait a second. I thought this stuff was unequivocally good. I know, I know. And I, even in answering that question, I don't want to make it I, I don't want to make it sound like energy efficient buildings are inherently dangerous because that's not true. And in fact, it's it's usually the case that energy efficient buildings are more durable. They're more healthy. they're they're more safe than their inefficient counterparts. But, they don't get that way by accident. And increasingly ambitious climate goals require competence in more than just energy efficiency. And those are the areas that that I teach architects about. Yeah, I talked with Clay Nessler, who's the global lead at the World Resources Institute for Buildings and Energy, and he's been working on buildings forever. And he said, look, over the last 10 years, we've definitely developed better practices and technologies, better passive design. So that super insulation we're talking about, um, very efficient heating and cooling systems, heat pumps, electrification technologies. Um, but what he said often is what happens is that, well, you might spend only one to two percent to really make a very smart and efficient building. 
What happens at the end of a building construction is what's called value engineering. (laughs) Basically, what that does (laughs) is it takes all of the value out of a building. Because what happens at the end of a construction of a project is you're running out of money, you're running out of time, and all those smart things that you've built in, building controls, renewables, storage, those are all of a sudden considered discretionary. And they get pushed out at the very last minute. And It costs three to 10 times more to retrofit those back in later. But what I'm really curious about from your standpoint, Christy, is like, how do you prevent that from happening? How do you keep things smart once you start down the smart pathway? That is a really good question. So in some ways, understanding design and building science and construction better equips designers to make decisions, early decisions in the design process that are less likely to get value engineered or VE is the is the short term, VE'd out of a project later on. Um, but there's only so much we can do, right? And I think one of the challenges that we've had, particularly with the, we, we, it sounds like we're going to get into this a little bit more later, but some of the challenges that we've had, particularly with our green rating systems or these incentive programs to encourage this kind of behavior is that we've essentially deputized architects to solve this problem by themselves. And we, I think, are not really acknowledging how how big a role the owner plays in this. And even, even owners and developers, they'll talk a big game about this stuff. But when you go through the value engineering phase, it's like, nope, 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 not doing that, not doing that, not doing that. And I think that if um, that there are much, much simpler commitments that we can get out of people publicly, whether they're mandatory or not, than um, than the current very confusing approach that we take right now. We can get into more of the weeds with those rating systems a little bit uh, later. So it seems then that the role of the architect has to really be throughout the entire process. So it can't just be the front end or the architect or designs this architect designs this beautiful building and it's very smart and it does all these wonderful things. That architect then also has to be empowered to keep that vision and that actual all of that building science that he or she has has designed in um truly there throughout the process, right? Yeah, and that's this is not a new problem for architects. In We see this in other areas too, right? Architects get criticized for like ugly buildings or like, buildings that don't sort of meet the, the grade, aesthetically speaking. And what I think a lot of people aren't thinking of then, I mean, and everybody, everybody's got a, an opinion. We're all very quick to judge. But if you talk to an actual practitioner, they can say, well, my client wanted this. These were the constraints of the job. This was my budget. And it ends up being a much more complicated, the, the decisions that went into whatever the final result was are much more complicated. So we see this in a lot of things, but we we also unfortunately see it with respect to to energy. And I think it's, it's uh, unfortunate that this gets sort of dumped on the shoulders of architects sometimes when this isn't, a lot of these decisions are not architectural decisions. Can we talk about some of the biggest problems we see in, in, in different sectors? So so let's talk about the residential sector where I think a lot of our listeners will understand the choices that they have to make. What are the common mistakes that you see architects or contractors subsequently making in um, when when these decisions are in front of them? Let's talk big picture first before getting into some of the some of the specifics in terms of retrofitting or even new construction. But if you take a step back, residentially, we're actually doing pretty well. 
with um, with energy improvements. So obviously, and it's obviously not well enough to stop. We want to keep going. But um, and, and then we, of course, have the some still some of that fine tuning to do with respect to durability that we discussed a little bit earlier. But we've actually made substantial progress. Um, a lot of people might not know this, but um, there's a kind of census, but for buildings that the government does every few years. And we actually have some pretty good data on energy use in buildings in the in the aggregate. And over the past 30 years, our residential buildings have gotten much more energy efficient. I mean, it's it's truly remarkable. So, for example, in 1993, the average residential building, this is this is old and new, just as a whole, the average residential building used 55 kBTUs per square foot. And by 2015, which is the most recent year that, that we have data, that was down to 38 kBTUs per square foot. Now, that is a really big deal. And um, that's something we should be really proud of. Now, that's per square foot, though. The average home, of course, has also gotten larger. And we have fewer occupants per home on average than we used to. But what's really interesting is that the downward trend holds even when we account for larger homes and fewer occupants per home. So the average home uses less energy as a whole, and the average person uses less energy at home by about 25%. So that that's really substantial. We've we've made some real progress over over the past um, the past 30 years or so. Um, now, so that's big picture. Let's talk about some of the big picture reasons for that for that decrease in energy use. And really, it's that in in homes we have much better windows than we used to, much much better. Our homes are more airtight. Our homes are better insulated, and the appliances and mechanical systems inside our homes have also gotten more efficient. So it's it's really the combination of those um, of those factors that have made us see really um, really excellent results when it comes to when it comes to homes. So that's great, and that is the result of thirty years of policy, uh, you know, improving building codes, weatherization programs, but. Are there also problems? Are there systems level problems on the individual home level that you see that are common when making these upgrades? Uh, I mean, when you're doing retrofits, yes, it's really important to hire a professional and it's important that the body of professional education exists so that your professional is actually competent in in understanding how these things work. You know, you don't want to do two steps forward or one step forward, two steps back with this kind of stuff. What makes retrofits very difficult in particular is that there's, you need a professional to apply professional judgment. There isn't a one size fits all rule for this kind of stuff. So you have to have someone experienced and competent come and look at your building and say, okay, well, how is it currently managing water? If we insulate, what's the best way of insulating? Are we going to, are we going to need to, what other improvements are we going to need to do at the same time so that we don't, um, we don't introduce a new problem that we, we didn't have before. Um, for example, I conditioned my, conditioned and insulated my crawl space in my 100 year old home. Well, before I could do that, I needed to regrade my site so that I was draining water away from my house and not into the crawl space that I was about to renovate. That's a pretty simple example, but 
Um, stuff like that requires professional judgment. That's not a, there's no code or, or program that can sufficiently address that, in my opinion. It's just an educated trade base and that, that has, to, has to be able to make those judgment calls on each job in each context. And, and how about on the commercial side? We touched on some of them previously, but are there common mistakes that you see architects and, and then therefore you know, builders and contractors making in commercial buildings? Oh, yes. <laughs> so let's start big picture with commercial as well. And unfortunately, in commercial construction, we are really struggling. We, um, so the average commercial building uses about the same amount of energy per square foot as it did in the early 90s. And that is not good. That's a, so we use about 80 kBTUs per square foot, which is about twice as much energy per square foot as the average home. And that is primarily related to glazing and ventilation. Even the best glass performs about as well or worse than the worst walls. And we use a lot of glass in commercial buildings. We also ventilate commercial buildings at much, much higher rates than we ventilate our homes. And when we bring in lots of outside air, we have to condition that air and that requires energy. And I think a really helpful distinction to make here is that we optimize interior conditions for comfort in residential buildings, but we optimize commercial buildings for productivity. That is a huge difference. And whereas we have a lot of um, market forces that make energy improvements very appealing in the residential market, those same market forces don't exist the same way in commercial buildings. Catherine, what's going on here? I thought we had all this these building automation revolutions happening and, you know, buildings were getting smarter. Uh, I'm very surprised by these numbers. Yeah, I, I mean, you're absolutely right that it's, it's really tough because we have this kind of confluence of really interesting technologies like, you know, a way for buildings be to become much more active so that they can do demand response, optimization, flexibility and all this. They're, they become flexible resources at the same time. They're there for a long time and they contribute quite a bit to greenhouse gases. And if you look at sort of the breakout, and uh, I, I talked to Isan Vahadi from MIT and University of uh, Nevada at Reno about a project that he did where he looked at all these regional variances and he got down to the county level, over 3,000 counties across the U.S. that he looked at and all the building use and where the carbon was coming from with the buildings. And about 23% is from that, what we talked about, the embodied internal, the way you build it, but then this almost 80% from their operational impact. So you're embodying these materials into a building, but the way you operate them has such a massive impact on the carbon emissions that you're that you're producing in a building. And whether or not you're digitized and actively contributing to the grid or not, the operation is still going to be crucial in reducing greenhouse gases. And one of the things we're finding that's really interesting is that uh, we're seeing some of these rating systems produce really kind of crazy results where some buildings are absolutely stellar and then others are actually over-consuming energy compared to similar similar use buildings of, of a similar size in, in the same city. So for example, 
the the first lead platinum skyscraper is uh, one Bryant Park in New York City. It's the Bank of America building. And it was completed in 2009, and it costs like a billion dollars to build that building. And um, in 2016, it used about three times more energy per square foot as the Empire State Building, which was built during the Great Depression. Like Herbert Hoover was president when the Empire State Building was built. It used um, almost four times as much energy per square foot as the Chrysler Building, which is also pretty bad. And one, if you, if you want to, if we talk about these particular buildings for a minute, one very obvious difference between them is that the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building are masonry buildings, and one Bryant Park is um, is all glass. But it's not as simple as that either. So that's usually where the comparison stops. People are like, oh, well, it's just that one is all glass and one isn't. But the bankers at Bank of America used 211 KBTUs per square foot in their glass tower in 2016, while the bankers at Goldman Sachs used only 100 KBTUs per square foot in their glass tower in the same city in the same year. And that disparity, so one is twice as much as the other. They're both glass towers. They both, they're both giant banking conglomerates. It's hard to know what's really going on. And part of what makes this very difficult to understand and predict is that any, every single building is essentially a prototype, right? right? We, we, we only ever build one, and it makes it really hard to compare. And another, makes it, another thing that makes it very hard to compare is that we don't actually look at energy use. Most of the design standards and awards are based on predicted performance based on energy models. And the numbers that I've just been citing are actual energy use, which the government of New York City now requires owners to disclose. And I'm, I'm really hopeful, actually, with, with that initiative, that more transparency will help not just to hold us accountable, like, we, obviously, we want to hold ourselves accountable in this very important area, but also that it helps us actually understand what's working and what's not. And right now, the transparency just just isn't there right now in, in commercial construction. And to put it really bluntly, a lot of times these standards end up rewarding or even outright subsidizing good intentions as opposed to good outcomes. So how do you explain it? Do you have theories about that? Is it the way they're operating the building? Mostly what happens is we end up blaming the occupants. I know that's you were asking a sincere question, but a lot of times it's that's where we the discussion takes this sort of predictable turn. It's uh, you get people very worked up and they say, well, these buildings that are supposed to be these high standard buildings, they comply with this this stand, this, this standard or this brand, um, don't actually comply. Therefore, this is all a lie. Um, and then the response is, well, we designed the building just right. It's just that the occupants are terrible. Um, now, I'm obviously exaggerating, but anyway, um, and it's it's just more complicated than that. So when it comes to actual energy consumption in buildings, the three most important factors related to the enclosure design. So the layers that separate the inside from the outside, the three most important factors in order are how much glass is on the building. So what is the glazing ratio? And sort of related to that, how good is the glass? The best glass is typically worse than our worst walls. 
um, or close to it. So how much glass is on the building is number one. Number two, how airtight is the building? And number three, how well insulated is the building? including stuff that we call thermal breaks or thermal bridging, where we have large structural elements that interrupt the, the insulation. So for example, if you have a concrete balcony that's come and you're, you're, you've got a con- concrete slabs on a commercial building and concrete balconies, you'll have a lot of heat loss that happens through the balcony, even if the wall above the balcony and the wall below the balcony are well insulated. Um, so anyway, so we've got glazing ratio, air tightness, and insulation are the three biggest enclosure-related factors. And the, the sort of non-enclosure-related factor that, that contributes enormously is the ventilation rates. So we, we ventilate our buildings, particularly our commercial buildings, at very, very high rates compared to residential buildings, which we mostly don't even ventilate. Sometimes, I mean, we're, we're starting to a little bit, but... Um, I mean, we ventilate residential buildings with the air that comes in when you've run your bathroom fan on, but we're not sort of deliberately providing ventilation. When we do that in commercial buildings, there's an enormous energy cost. So everything is sort of downstream of those things. So when I mentioned before about uh, perhaps a more transparent or an easier, maybe more effective rating system would be to focus on those three things and say, um, air tightness is a little hard, but we could we could say, okay, so this, I'm giant architecture firm X, and I'm saying instead of making a commitment to, well, all our buildings are going to be lead buildings, um, I, I shouldn't have even said that. I don't want to build, I don't want to antagonize any particular, any particular system, but if instead of following a program w- with its complexities, or in addition to following a program with its complexities, the firm said, okay, we're going to have we're we're not going to design buildings with more than 40% glass um or they can they can decide what it is based on climate or building type or or whatever they can make it as complicated as they want and our and our minimum standard for glass is this our air tightness target is this and we're not and we're going to test we commit to testing all of our buildings um are we are not going to design buildings without using continuous exterior insulation regardless of what the code calls for in that climate and they can be specific about how much, you know, whatever. But those are much more, even though they're not relying on an actual energy metric or, you know, measured performance, we know that those are the factors. We know that that's the order of importance. And it's very easy to verify that. It's very hard to know how or whether a building complied with a standard without, they just have to show documentation. If we can, if we can simplify and, and find transparency where, where we can, I think that we're perhaps more likely to get more buy-in and more, more, more actual outcome-based success. A quick pause here to talk about our supporters of the show. One of those supporters is SunGrow. SunGrow is a leading global supplier of inverter solutions to renewables. This year, SunGrow is supplying more than 1.5 gigawatt hours of energy storage technology to projects across North America. One of those projects is in Fort Worth, Texas. It's the Chisholm Grid Project, and it's going to use SunGrow's advanced converters and controls alongside lithium-ion batteries to meet the demanding air cop market conditions while reducing operating costs and extending the lifespan of those batteries. In the past year, SunGrow has also joined the RE100 with a commitment to switch its global power needs to 100% renewable energy by 2028. To learn more about SunGrow's wide range of industry-leading technologies, email info at sungrowamericas.com. 
We are also brought to you by SNC Electric. Solving your power-related challenges requires careful consideration before making major investments. If you're a utility or maybe a commercial enterprise, you've got a critical decision ahead of you. You can select a conventional wired approach or respond in a non-conventional way. Even with dedicated in-house resources, getting to that conclusion can be uncertain and very time-consuming. And that's why you need an experienced integrator like SNC Electric Company. SNC will be with you every step of the way, thoroughly working through your challenges and reviewing your energy needs to offer an expanded set of options specifically for you. Learn more at snc.com slash nwa. There is a serious movement in cities around the country to put in more stringent building codes. Um, um, I'm wondering, Catherine, if you can walk us through some of that that activity and also on the industry side, we do see more home builders, more commercial construction companies, more architects coalescing coalescing around these broad 2050 net zero goals. So how would you identify the movement happening on the policy and industry side? Yeah, so a couple things. Uh, as you said, this local law 97 in New York City is like requires buildings to reduce carbon and report on it, which is really important. And then last week, Boston announced um, a carbon-based building performance standard to go zero by 2050. And so some of these requirements by cities are really, really important um, because, as Christy said, buildings are one-offs <laughs> and every building is different. So reporting on buildings and having full transparency is really crucial and having performance standards in place. So it's not just about how you built it and what it was supposed to do, but actually what it is doing. And there are lots and lots of things that we can do from a policy standpoint, some of which are very much about sticks and some of them are about carrots. So I talked with Lowell Unger, who heads up policy at ACEEE, the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy. And he said there are a couple different things that are going on. One is from an agency standpoint in the federal government and then from the congressional standpoint. So from an agency standpoint on buildings, there, there are a couple different buckets. One is appliance standards and one is codes. So on the appliance standard side, um, what was really important during the Trump administration was that basically they put in place roadblocks such that standards could not be set. So the first thing that has to happen is that there's six draft rules out that would actually remove and reverse those processes so that Department of Energy could then put in place appliance standards. So first they have to remove the restrictions and then they have about 50 standards that they have to put into place. This is a lot of work. It's something that the Trump administration was pretty diabolically good at doing, which was blocking future actions. Um, so that's going on to increase appliance standards. That's really helpful because then what's on the market has to be better. And the second part is on the code side. So the International Energy Conservation Code um, is now at the 2021 version, which is a significant improvement. It's very much better than the previous version. They put into place a manufactured home standard. So we were talking about I live in a manufactured home. Um, and that's about 100,000 new homes a year. So they have um, new standards standards for that with seal, better ceiling, windows, shell, ductwork. Um, a third thing is that homes that are HUD programs, so these are FHA loans, um, agriculture department loans, HUD loans, those are all also much better. Those those codes have been updated from like 2009 to more modern codes. And then 
they've also changed some processes so that um, you know, while some codes making organizations try to prevent folks from participating, often stakeholders being in the room is really, really important. And certainly ACEEE has had an enormous impact on making sure that they hold industry's feet to the fire. There's, a, there's a, I think, an important distinction to be made when it comes to building codes. So the energy code, just because something is in the energy code doesn't make it the law or, or mandatory for uh, owners and architects and builders to, to comply with. So once the, the, ener- the energy code is essentially a recommendation a best recommendation. Now, it's a very influential recommendation, but it's essentially a recommendation on what the energy requirements should be in any given jurisdiction. And then those jurisdictions at the local level decide whether or not to adopt those um, recommendations. And, And sometimes they add to them or alter them a little bit. So you'll see some jurisdictions will be still under the 2009 IECC codes. Um, rather than the the most recent iteration of them, so that's part one, uh, and and I I think that actually has been working reasonably well for us. I think some, obviously, some localities have have been dragging their feet on that stuff, and that's unfortunate. But I think the and, and perhaps there are ways of encouraging people to move faster with this. But I do think that it allows some local buy in that's really important. Um, the second thing I think is is interesting or related has to do with the building code. Um, the building code is also a it's a collaborative process and anybody can participate in that. Like you don't even have to be in the building industry. Now, I don't know why you would really spend a whole lot of time going to the code hearings, but if you have a code change, you can present that and argue your case in front of this sort of um, it's it's a it's an industry group that controls where these codes get what gets presented and how they get adopted and that's a really important part of the building industry and it is a collaborative process so you have a lot of manufacturers and their representatives that are keenly involved in this because they want to gain a competitive advantage by using the code to make them look better or more appealing than their competitors or to sometimes i mean nefariously kind of make it Make it the rule that make some rule that excludes their competitors, um, but a lot of it is normal people, stakeholders who haven't. A lot of it is building officials and and other people who are interested in the in the industry who can make a case for um, changing codes here or there. Um, so that's a that's that's something that industry can be part of and is a part of right now, which I think it, it makes certainly makes this more complicated, but also more interesting. I really want to focus in on the architectural world now. And we see a lot of prominent groups backing net zero design principles. Ed Masria, who is very well known in this space, is the founder of Architecture 2030. And he has been pushing architects to join this movement um, and to to commit themselves to building out their portfolios and, and committing to net zero designs. You are somewhat skeptical of this approach, and I wonder why. Yeah. um, First of all, I'm in favor of net zero or near net zero energy use during occupancy. And I think it's actually not unrealistic for ordinary homes, even with occupants who don't have any particular climate goals, to get there or to get pretty close. 
What I'm not in favor of is performance standards for buildings based on estimates of carbon consumption prior to occupancy. And the reason for that, to be (laughs) very frank, is because I think that they're ineffective, unscientific, and could potentially lead us leave us worse off than um, from a climate perspective than than when we started. So uh, dig into that a little bit deeper. Why? So uh, Catherine before made a distinction that I think a lot of your listeners are pretty familiar with in that we can measure energy and um, that that a building operates during during its use. But embodied carbon is the amount of carbon that was produced to manufacture and deliver the building materials to the site and install them. And the idea, of course, is that our buildings shouldn't just use minimal energy to operate, but they should also minimize how much carbon we produce in building them in the first place. And that makes sense. But when we try to then develop a building performance standard that reflects this, we run into some really big problems. And as I see it, there are, there are really three problems. The first problem is that carbon is not a physical property like density or, or mass or something. So we can take an object and say, what is its mass? or what is its density, and there's a single right answer to that question. doesn't matter who you ask, there's an answer. Um, Embodied carbon, though, isn't like that. It is calculated, not measured. And it's calculated by adding up estimates of how much carbon was produced during the manufacture of the inputs of whatever it is that we're measuring. We're not engaged in science there. That is arithmetic or accounting. And any kind of system that we use is going to have to make ultimately arbitrary decisions about what to count and what not to count, how far back in time we go, how far forward we go, and how broad we want to be. And any system is also going to have to apply to very, very different industries with no real way of knowing if we're focusing or if we're favoring one industry or another, not because it's necessarily better, but because of what we happen to include or exclude in our metric. So does the first brick tie off the line have a higher embodied carbon count than the millionth? Does it matter if we build several brand new facilities to each serve individual regions in the in the country that used to be served by a larger existing facility further away? Does it matter if the roads going to those new facilities were already there or if they're brand new just for, for the new facilities? Does it matter what kind of equipment is required to process the material in question? Does it matter how that equipment was made? And those are not obvious answers. And they are not questions of science. Catherine, what do you make of this? Uh, as a non-expert here, it feels like this is this is a yes and for me. Like, yes, we definitely need to focus on embodied carbon, but certain policies have unforeseen consequences. Um, but we need transparency and simplicity. And we hear that all the time from people in this world. And, and programs tend to be very convoluted. So how do you how do you make sense of what Christy's saying here? Yeah, so one thing you can do is something very specific regarding embodied carbon, which, for example, with concrete, there's a huge amount of concrete being used. And there's some things you can do to mitigate the greenhouse gas impact of that, right? So you can use more fly ash and slag mixed into your cement production so that you have less of the carbon piece of it. You can you can reutilize um 
like companies like Carbon Cure are doing and put it into aggregates. You can you can do all kinds of things to mitigate concrete. So that is like taking solutions specific to an embodied carbon impact, right? But the other that doesn't mean but that doesn't have anything to do with measuring it. I think on the measuring side, we still have to look at energy and what is what is the energy impact, right? Because that is going to lead to what is actually being produced to feed that building with what it needs to function. And so I think that they're just two separate things. And I think we do have to do everything we can on the embodied piece. But then the operational piece has just so much greater impact on greenhouse gas. And so I think that what we need to do is figure out what are the right measurements. There is, I'm curious what you think about this, uh, Christy, there is a tax proposal right now to use the energy use index for um, new commercial and existing commercial buildings um, to make it actually an easier to retrofit in buildings. And it just strikes me that the energy use index, since it's a measure of the performance per square foot, might be more accurate. Yeah, I don't know enough about it to really uh, to really comment more intelligently, except to say that I agree with um, if, if we're going to do something like this. And I think we I think we should. I think most of these actually I think if we really want to be effective, what we're having is not an architectural or scientific discussion. What we're having is a is a policy discussion. And this is a this is an international and national issue, not just a not just a a, a very local issue. Um, so I I I think that that's um, that's of course important. But I think anything that any approach really needs to be anchored to something real and measurable because it's too important for us to go on um, on intent. We, we really need to focus on actual on actual outcomes. And to return to what you what you just the example Catherine you gave is actually a perfect example with respect to concrete. So concrete uses there's just a lot of embodied carbon in concrete or a lot of carbon production goes into producing concrete. Um, so much so that it, it eclipses the carbon in almost any other par- single part of your of your building. So do we want to, if we have some metric that accounts for this, is it really the message we want to send that your your decision between the furnishings in your house is essentially irrelevant? Um, if you've if you've used a slab on grade, it's sort of over for you. I, I don't. I think it sort of creates the un- unintended consequence that only the largest producers need to focus on this. When really, if we're gonna if we're really gonna make any progress, we want everybody to focus on it, and um, and that that matters. But I, I don't want us to only focus on some of the biggest ticket thing and suggest that the rest of this the rest of these the rest of these materials don't merit our consideration because I think they do. Um, but I think it's just, again, it's just too blunt, a blunt, an object to uh, a system like this has the right intent behind it, but has the potential to really make us lose the forest for the trees. So let's bring this back around specifically to building science and be more explicit about this. So again, you run an Instagram account called building science flight club. It's all about, uh, using a clearer focus on building science to make better decisions. So, so much of this world is math, right? We just went through all the complicated math that goes into these decisions. Where should the math end and the building science begin? It is math, but honestly, most of the time, the the big rules of thumb are 
are what we really need to take away from it. So I, I teach, so I teach informally on Instagram, but I also teach a more comprehensive class that's that's much longer. It's it's more formal. I teach it online. Um, you can sign up buildingsciencefightclub.com if you are in this particular, if this particular thing interests you. But um, the point I'm making is when I do that, when I'm teaching architects, I take them through the math on this stuff. And it's not, it isn't that hard. This is, we're in the realm of arithmetic, not calculus. So I, I will take them through the the math behind this stuff and introduce them to the equations and the and the factors that matter, because it's valuable to to do that once the first time. After that, the rules of thumb do really well. We do very very well with that. So for example, architects ought to know all of them graduating, which unfortunately I don't think they're getting in um, in. You know, when you graduate with a master's in architecture like I did, I don't think, like me, uh, that many of recent grads are able to prioritize design decisions with respect to energy in the way that I did here, right? So the top three enclosure-related things in order are glazing ratio, air tightness, and insulation. Like simple things like that. And the math helps us understand how these things relate to each other and how any disproportionate effect is always interesting. Um, so it's important to know that. But you don't. The tr I don't run equations <laughs> every day um, or uh, very infrequently will I ever run an equation. It's how do I rank these things in their relative contribution to overall output? And you don't need to you don't need to get to the level of, of decimal points to make a, a big impact. And actually, in fact, it's almost the opposite. When you're when you're working with decimal points, to me, that suggests that you don't actually understand how the building actually works, usually, uh, because we can't be that precise in buildings. There are too many variables. So when people are, and that's one of my issue, I, I have to laugh when we go through some of these carbon metrics, they're using like three or four decimals to describe the carbon count in something where I'm like, seriously, like, I can't, I can't describe almost anything that way, except maybe the amount of money in my bank account. <laughs> <laughs> So, so Catherine, where do you think this this world is headed now? Well, I am very hopeful that Congress can pull together a reconciliation package because there will be lots and lots of money to do this better. So there will be $9 billion for something called Hope for Homes, which would rebate, provide rebates for whole home retrofits and audits, and twice as much would go to communities of low and middle income. And then there's another bill called Zero Emission Homes that would be electrification rebates for heat pumps, heat pump water heaters, induction stoves, et cetera. So y'all thinking about buying that just wait a little bit longer. We'll see what happens. But that's another $9 billion and the bulk of it also going to LMI communities. So I'm super excited that Congress might actually do something that will move the needle. Christy, what's the, the, the most exciting area that you're focusing on technologically, from a building science perspective, um, industry movement? What's, what's most interesting to you? So I think actually residentially, we're about to see massive changes to ventilation and indoor air quality. And those changes are going to require different equipment and much more attentive enclosure de design. I mentioned earlier that um, right now, apart from bathroom fans and range hoods and dryer exhausts, we're not mechanically ventilating homes. We're conditioning them, but we're not actually bringing in 
outdoor fresh air and conditioning that air, filtering it or, or whatever. Um, and I think that's I think that's going to change, particularly post COVID. And I think we're really going to need to step up to accommodate higher standards as they relate to the enclosure and its energy efficiency. And I hope that we can learn a lot of those lessons, or we can, in learning a lot of those lessons, we can apply apply that to energy efficient in larger buildings where ventilation is a much more significant contributor to performance. Well, that's a good place to wrap it. Let's let's give our free electrons before we go. Catherine, why don't you start with your free electron? Yeah, have you ever heard of a Lord God bird? No. So this was a bird. Will I ever I- hear of it? Is this a bird that's gone extinct? <laughs> yes. Oh. Unfortunately, it's the ivory-billed woodpecker. It was actually since 1890s um, really endangered. It was, a, it was a woodpecker that was so large and so dramatic that when it would swoop down on people, they'd say, Lord God. And that's why they called it that. Um, but there were many other over 20 species that have been found um, extinct, just announced 10 types of birds and bats, eight types of freshwater mussels, and certainly this ivory-billed woodpecker. Um, so it's it's pretty sad when we see this happening every single day. Yeah, I, I, saw, I saw that news come out, and the government has basically given up looking on uh, looking for all these species. You know, they've spent years trying to, to find many of them, and there have been no sightings. Really, really sad. Um, Christy, what is your free electron? You told me about this and told me to prepare or so that I could prepare and I forgot. So off the fly, since we're on a a woodpecker theme, um, I had a, now we are, I had a uh, a dear friend who was designing a passive house. And so super, super uh, high standard in terms of energy efficiency. And also on the site during construction was a woodpecker. And the woodpecker was pecking away at the exterior insulation and, and damaging the, um, he was worried it was going to damage the air, air control layer behind it. And, um, but he was very torn, right? Because he didn't want to, he didn't want to shoot the woodpecker. Um, and also he did he had two reasons to not want to shoot the woodpecker. He didn't want to shoot the woodpecker because he didn't want the woodpecker to die. But he also didn't want uh, to get, you know, the shotgun I don't know, shotgun shot, I guess it's called. I'm Canadian. Pellets, I don't know pellets, a lot about guns yeah. here. Um, the pellets to puncture his air barrier. So he had a very difficult trade-off to make. Maybe I should not have shared the story. I don't know what he did. No, I think it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. I'm not going to get <laughs> well, in trouble yeah, with the... We'll, we'll leave it up to the audience. We'll leave it up to whether, the audience. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, it was... Uh, it, it's a beautiful... Whatever he did, he figured it out because the house is beautiful and I hope it's coexisting with a wonderful woodpecker population. <laughs> <laughs> So my story is uh, all about the fires in the West. And uh, 2018, I think this term Moneyball for Fire first emerged. And that was using statistics and sophisticated modeling to predict where, speaking of modeling, by the way, to predict where fires are going to go. And historically, firefighters have relied on past seasons to determine how fires are going to act. And you you know, they, they basically create a map in their head of where fires went and they would fight fires based upon the previous year's experience. That, of course, has all gotten thrown out the window as every single year is basically a record fire year. Um, 
in the last decade has been astonishing to see how how quickly the West is burning. And so firefighters came together and said, okay, how do we use better predictive analytics to figure out where fires are going to go? And in 2018, this started to become um, common. And uh, this year, so the Wall Street Journal had this really great piece on the history of Moneyball for Fire. And Moneyball, by the way, is... Um, this term that was used in baseball. I think it was the 2000 Oakland A's, Billy Bean, who was yeah, the manager and, of the Oakland A's. And who A's. wrote about that? That was, was it? That was Michael, Michael, Michael Lewis. Yeah. Lewis. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, fantastic book. Yeah. And the, the, the anyway, the, Billy Bean used statistics to choose a, a winning team rather than the intuition of scouts and you know, the use of stats was became commonplace in baseball and in other sports. And so uh, this is now used in other industries as well. And in, now this, in just a few years, this model has started to get maxed out. And these firefighters, are, the, the models are not working anymore because the fires are getting so out of control. So the Wall Street Journal has a great piece on it. And I was really fascinated about how this was a revolutionary technique in firefighting that's already gotten, been getting tested by by the astonishing growth in wildfires so christy thank you so much for joining us where can people find you um you can find me on instagram i post only once a week uh on a on a technical topic it's really geared for professionals who are already in the in the industry um but if that's you listening if a professional happens to be listening and is interested in learning more about building science you can find me on instagram i also um have a newsletter where I send the same thing I post on Instagram in a newsletter via email for those people who uh, prefer not to be on social media. Great. Yeah. Building Science Fight Club. Go check it out. And Catherine, where can people find you on Zoom calls pitching members of Congress? Right. Not on Instagram. I do have an Instagram account, but 10 of the 12 people who follow me are members of my own family. So yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know the should be. As it should be. I follow you. <laughs> At Clean Grid View on Twitter. Yeah. All right. Wonderful conversation. Good to see both of you. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang. We're a co-production of Postscript Media and Wood McKenzie. If you want to, uh, you can find us all online. If you want to hit us up on Twitter at The Energy Gang or me and Catherine, you can react to the show, provide show suggestions, and we will catch you next week. This is The Energy Gang, weekly conversations about the future of energy. Thanks for being here.